Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. In this episode today, we're going to be talking about um, fussy babies, which is really quite a common issue. So common. Parents are asking us about this all the time. Right. And um, we're really pleased today to have um, Nicole Wickens join us as a guest. She's a psychotherapist and associate clinical director at Cooper House in Seattle. Welcome, Nicole. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. First, can you tell us a little bit about Cooper House, where you work, and what your expertise in dealing with fussy babies is? Sure. Yeah. Cooper House is a clinic. Basically, we have two two buildings uh, nearby each other. And our mission and focus is to work with babies, very young children, and their families to support the social, emotional, and behavioral development. And we try to get in there and address issues that are going on or help people think about uh, what's happening with their babies, especially when it's pretty confusing or stressful. So one of the things that is really stressful, I think, for everybody is we all get stressed out when we hear a baby cry. And we know that parents get really aroused by this. And strangers, anybody who's around gets aroused by a baby crying. So why don't we just start off at the beginning, which is why do babies cry? It's a good question. And it's very prevalent. Obviously, babies come into the world hopefully crying. And in the beginning, that's that's a hopeful sign, you know, that they're healthy and, and doing okay. So that can be relieving. But when it continues, it can be stressful. And we like to think of babies cry in, in lieu of um, they don't have language, they don't have words, they you know, have very limited motor control. So this is a signal to say, I need something, you know, especially to parents or caregivers that it's signaling them to come closer, you know, help me out is basically how we think about the cry. So they can't talk. And so that's their really their only form of communication. Exactly. Yeah. I always try and reframe the, oh, they're such a fussy baby to, oh, they're really trying to communicate with you and kind of establish, you know, teach you what that cry means for this, this, or this. So what usually do you tell, like, these are the five things that you should check when your baby cries? What do you go through with parents about that? Parents usually have, you know, a basic understanding of this, of course, is, you know, is my child in pain? Is my child hungry? Do they have a a diaper that needs to be changed? Um, Are they uncomfortable? So basically going through those, you know, those steps of the basic physical situations that that babies are going to try to signal you for. And I think it gets more confusing when a parent has gone through that whole checklist and they're well-fed and their diaper's clean and, you know, that everything seems fine, but they're still crying. And that's when it can get to be confusing and frustrating for parents. So they've looked at the easy stuff and the, the easy, obvious, simple stuff. There's no explanation for the baby crying. And so then they have to go to the next step. And what is the next step to figure out why the baby's crying and, and try to comfort them? The next step can be uh, varied, but I think you know, typically we try to support parents to think, okay, you've you've figured that all out and to kind of take a little solace that you've you've checked all these basic things and now what's happening and 
you know, sometimes this is a time period, especially in the early weeks, that parents are really learning their baby. And I think, Lena, you alluded to, you know, the babies are trying to tell you specifically what's up, but they can't use words. So parents try to figure it out. So it might be that this baby's really sensitive. Um, they might like more movement than a typical baby, or they might want it, the lights down a little bit lower. So the individual differences in the baby are what we want parents to begin to think about and try some things to be curious. We want to help parents be curious and try things. Yeah. And they refer to this time as the fourth trimester sometimes um, just for that very reason. It's like it still is part of you know, getting to know your child, letting them adjust to the outside world. I always say like they were in a day spa and now they are here and it's cold and bright and people like, you know, they just have so much stimulation that it is normal that there are these, you know, this time period to get used to. What about techniques for they're not wet they are well-fed, like you mentioned. Um, there's nothing that's causing them pain. They don't have a fever. There are some techniques that parents, sometimes we recommend they use. What do you usually tell them? Oftentimes we start with, what have you tried? We try to ask the parents, what have you tried? Because that seems like a, a useful starting point. And it also gives the parents some confidence and uh, sense of empowerment that they've tried things. And and so we might watch what they're doing, but sometimes it is about stimulation, whether it be auditory or um, visual or just even physical. So sometimes um, hold, some babies like to be held a little tighter. Some might like swaddling more than other babies. Some might like a little more freedom. Some babies respond to sounds like the shushing is pretty popular. Since we're in this territory, one of the things that we try to help parents with is try not to try too many things at once because, you know, there's some, I think there's some books that talk about, you know, all these, you know, bounce on a ball and shush your baby and swaddle. And and sometimes that can be overstimulating for a baby. And if it's not working, it's hard to know which part of that isn't working. So we we really try to help parents try one to two things at a time for for a while. Give it some time to see if it works before moving on to a different kind of strategy. Yeah, that's a great point. I always learned the five S's, the swaddle, sway, shh, suck. And I don't normally tell parents that they should introduce one at a time, but I really like that idea so that they know which one worked. Especially for a particularly fussy baby where it's kind of confusing. Some babies just take right to maybe all of those S's and then it seems like you're good. <laughs> so, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of differences among kids and some kids like to be held and swaddled and other kids don't and other kids the sounds are important and some kids movement is good and others it's bad and so this really kind of highlights that kids are really different and they're individuals and does this get into now I might be getting out of my comfort zone now but does this get into like temperament at Cooper House we will talk sort of about temperament but by that we might mean um, how does this baby come into the world? You know, what is their individual profile? And so we might think about their sensitivities, whether under or over, and just who they are. And so, yeah, temperament is probably a fine word to think about that, that we like to think about sort of what is the child's regulatory capacities, meaning how can they organize themselves and how much help do they need from you? Obviously, all babies need help when they're born into the world because you know, they're out of that day spa, as you said, Lena, that it's, um, and now they have to kind of figure it out. But yes, it's, I think, learning your baby and thinking about 
oh, they like movement or they like car rides or they, or they need it very, very quiet. And so that doesn't mean that can't shift a bit, you know, because some really sensitive babies, we can try to help them, let's see, become more flexible, become a little more sturdy with stimuli. But yeah, I think we have to think about babies coming into the world and offering themselves. They're not just a blank slate where we get to shape them as, as we like. You know, they're bringing their own selves into the world, including their neurophysiology. When I was in training like 100 years ago, we didn't think or nobody taught me or I didn't pay attention to like babies organizing themselves. And then I've like heard of that. And I just think of a, it's a really different way of thinking of the baby instead of just taking care of their basic needs that they've already got a temperament. They've already got a personality and they're already strategizing how to deal with the world. And this is where it can work really well sometimes, especially if the temperament, if you will, or the style of the baby matches well with the parent. But, you know, a, a baby likes quiet and the mom or father likes quiet and that works really well. But sometimes it's tricky when uh, there's a maybe a more fast paced parent and likes to talk a lot and over, you know, is maybe louder and this baby's like, whoa, I can't handle this. And so that's when we try at Kubrow's to try to get the goodness of fit is what we call it. How can we help them meet each other a little bit better so as to deal with the fussiness and the crying and, um, and, and have the parent have some joy in parenting this baby too. Yeah. That goes nicely into like what parents can do when they're feeling really overstimulated or upset that really nothing that they're doing is comforting their baby. I know that Every parent friend that I have had has had these like breakdown moments of just like they won't stop crying. So what do you tell parents in that situation? Well, first of all, let them know that it's it's pretty normal, you know, and that doesn't help everything. But I think when a parent feels ineffective or just frustrated, it can be helpful to know this is going to happen. And of course, you're tired and this is hard. So we really want to bolster the parent's social network whether that be their partner or spouse or friend or family or sometimes a therapist, letting them know that they need support because what they're doing is really difficult. And also taking breaks when they can and that they need to actually because the baby's really asking a lot of them. So if they can have breaks, get support, fuel themselves with things they need so that they have a little more capacity to, to deal with a fussy baby. What if a parent is alone and they can't hand the child off to somebody else and they've tried everything and they still can't get the baby comfortable? Is it okay for the parent to just say, I need a break and let the baby cry? Yes, I think we have to say, is it ideal? Probably not, but it's not ideal for the mother either to have to 24-7 be with a baby who's not comforted. So yes, if the parent has to, especially if they're reaching their limits where they're maybe starting to feel frustrated, impatient, that it's okay for the baby to cry for short bits while the parent take a break. And and then if that refuels the parent, they can come back and have a little more capacity to deal with the, the baby. That, you know, five, 10 minutes here and there is not going to make or break this baby's spirit, if you will, you know. And I noticed, Nicole, that you mentioned the mother, and I think that we all think that really this does fall primarily on the mother most of the time in our society. It's true. And uh, in our trainings, it has been primarily the mother, but we know now, of course, that it might be the father, or it's just as likely that it might be the father or whatnot. So 
Typically still, I think it is the mother who's, who's at home more or caregiving the baby, but that's not always true. Right. And so I just like to, to highlight that it, it's disproportionate. And so it's really nice for any fathers who are listening, really, you know, pitch in and, and go in there and help mom out. Yeah, totally. And we did a separate episode on postpartum depression and baby blues. And we know that all of these things bring this on in moms. And so we want to look out for that too. There are some things that you teach families that this is the this is something you should not do. This is not effective at dealing with your, your baby. We try to help parents uh, and we look for if a parent's really reaching their limit and feels at risk for hurting the baby or shaking the baby or neglecting the baby, that we understand the feelings that might arise to lead a parent toward that. Um, so we try to normalize that, but we absolutely really are clear with parents that, you know, being too rough or physical or harming the baby obviously is not helpful. And leaving a baby to cry for long periods of time is not that helpful either. So we really, even if a baby is crying and a parent can't console them, their presence with the baby is doing a lot for their social emotional sense and their their relationship. And so even if the baby's crying, to be there as much as possible with the breaks we talked about, but leaving a baby to cry for too many, too many hours, too many minutes, you know, I say minutes, you know, that sometimes an hour is, is too long for a baby to be inconsolable. And that can be overwhelming to the child and they can start to shut down or, you know, feel wounded by that emotionally. Definitely. And there are a lot of crisis nurseries in every city. So if you feel yourself at that breaking point, we can post some phone numbers and addresses in our area, but we usually give that number that you, you know, they don't, it's not punitive. You can drop your kid off at least a few times a year if you just need that respite and break. And so I think that's always good because most parents' intention is never, I don't think, to shake their baby, but just developmentally, they don't have good control. You know, when you're like, just stop, like, I just need a minute, that motion can be really, really dangerous to babies. And so I think it's something that really important to remember. Absolutely. And uh, just to follow on that, that we... Sometimes families come to us and um, the mother or father is like, what's, what's wrong with my baby? And, and it's true, it's the baby that's crying or that they can't, you know, console them. But we really focus on the parents equally in, in the sense that they're forming a relationship, but also that the parent, we know this is stressful. And so we have to try to reduce the parent's stress as well, you know, and can they do mindfulness exercises? Can they put themselves in a space, you know, baby starts crying and they know they have to go in there and it might be hours. They might be thinking, so can we try to help parents get in a kind of a well-regulated state themselves, whether that's some deep breathing, kind of prepare themselves. Maybe if they have a partner or spouse to say, I can go in there, but I think I've only got about 30 minutes in me. Can you come in? So to kind of prevent and give themselves a little bit of a plan when they're having to deal with a fussy baby so that they can identify when they're reaching that moment of, uh-oh, I'm feeling a little bit out of control. So we try to help parents stay tuned into their own internal experience so that they can identify that when it happens. Because, you know, people will reach that point, whether they harm their baby or not. So parents will reach that point, and hopefully parents know when to stop and take a break. Yeah, so we try to support the parents as much as possible. Are there certain ages, um, you know, we're kind of taught like 
you know, two weeks to four months or something that crying is more just like a part of the day-to-day that you have to deal with. Is there an age that you tell parents like this should get better? Um, just hang on. Mm-hmm. The crying curve is kind of, you know, from two weeks to about three to four months. And we do expect it to kind of start tapering at three to four months. And knowing that, that there is an end point can be really helpful to parents, knowing that this likely will not go on, you know, for the, for a year. <laughs> you know, some babies are, and then we, we address that at that point, you know. But yeah, we try to help them know that around six to eight weeks, it's probably going to peak, and um, but that by three, four months, it should start tapering. And and yet, the other thing is, while we know this is kind of the average or, or quote-unquote normal curve, within this normal crying curve, there is a lot of variability. So while it's typical and average, one might have a baby that's kind of crying a lot right up until three, four months, and it doesn't peak until later. So Within a normal curve, there's a lot of variability. So we really try to help look at an individual parent and child. I was just wondering if you had some common things that you've come across in your practice that some misconceptions parents might have about things to do for a crying baby that just are the wrong thing to do. I think sometimes if parents feel that, you know, well, my baby's going to have to learn with um, stress, so I'm just going to let them cry it out, you know, that they're going to have to, you know, be tough in the world or, you know, this is good for them, that um, I think that's a misconception. We try to help them recognize that this baby still needs help, that we do want them to be able to handle distress and frustration down the road, but before they get there, they need the parent's help. So we try to help them say, yes, we're aiming for that goal. Uh, for a little more self-regulation by the baby. But before they can have self-regulation, they need co-regulation by the parent, meaning the parent needs to help a little bit more. So we try to help them think about that. You know, also sometimes parents might think, oh, I heard if you put the baby in a carrier on the washing machine, that movement will (laughs) help them. And of course, you know, unsupervised babies on washing machines, you know, that's not helpful too. But, um, you know, and then from because I'm a mental health therapist too, sometimes parents have histories of their own difficult childhoods um, that may start to creep in to this arena as well, where um, if they've had a difficult childhood, they might think, ah, this baby's trying to manipulate me, you know, or they're just crying because they need all this attention and they're trying to control me. And so those are more uh, mental attributes that we try to understand with the parent about where that came from and that so that they can see their baby in their in their own right, that this is a little little one trying to figure the world out and figure out their body, and they just need your help. I think that's a great point. Some other things parents sometimes ask during this is, is it feeding related? And sometimes, you know, there can be cycles to fussiness or crying where maybe they notice that they're crying more after they're feeding. Have you noticed this trend sometimes? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, the feeding relationship is such a, um, it can be fraught with so many challenges because it's, it's you know, it's a basic need and parents get a lot of um, feeling of satisfaction that they can feed their baby. It's one of the most basic things they, that make them feel like a competent parent. And so when it doesn't go well, whether it be the baby's not eating or the baby's fussier before or after or during, um, it can it can be very challenging. And so, um, of course, we want to rule out anything medical, you know, allergies, reflux, um, any swallowing problems. So once, once that's ruled out, um, we try to help the parents just recognize patterns and think, 
you know, and try, do they, does this child overfeed? You know, do they get too full? Do you, can we space it out a little bit more? Or what position does a baby need to be in while feeding and after feeding? So um, those are some of the things we think about with the parents. Yeah, those are all good points. I definitely think of overfeeding um, sometimes in the office, depending on if they're formula fed or breastfed, you can try switching the formula if it does seem to be related. Sometimes we try if moms are breastfeeding, like an elimination diet from moms. But again, this is after going into extensive history, feeding history, make you know other symptoms with the baby as well. Well, and just to add to that is that sometimes if the if the baby is particularly fussy or vocal, as you say, you know that they're making their their distress known. That sometimes when feeding is the one. Sometimes for some parents, that's the one thing that calls them, calms them down, which then they might go to that more than trying other things or trying to read other cues from the baby that, oh, what else might they be needing besides feeding? So we try to help them think about that, too. How about pacifiers? Do you recommend pacifiers? We try to help parents find things, you know, pacifiers or a lovey or a stuffy or something that can a bit of a transitional object, even though we're talking at earlier time, they're not transitioning yet, but an item that can uh, foster a child's self-regulation when the parent can't be present or the the bottle or the breast can't be present, that this is actually a nice um, thing for babies to be able to do is to soothe themselves when the parent can't be there because the parent can't be there 24-7. So I think used um, judiciously or, you know, not just to stop them from crying every single time, put the pacifier in their mouth, but maybe for sleep or when they're distressed, but they are well-fed and they need, you know, kind of the oral sucking motion to help soothe them, then I think it can be a really nice combination of the parent helping the baby soothe to the baby learning to help themselves too. I wanted to just talk about the the fussy baby name, and I guess I worry a little bit about calling like kids like, oh, my baby's a fussy baby, or they're like overly sensitive and does, is that like a, a stigmatization of the child? And is there a, a different way that we should be talking about children um, rather than labeling them as, as fussy or sensitive? Yeah, if we when we say fussy baby, it is definitely locating the problem in the baby, which, you know, in a, in a way that's, that's what's happening is that um, the baby's having a hard time and they're, you know, crying more than usual. At Cooper House and how we think about it is we really look at the, the relationship between the mom and baby, even if the stated problem is my baby's crying too much, you know. Um, so we do, at least through the work, try to help parents uh, think about what can we do uh, with the two of you together to kind of help this baby feel a little more regulated. And I guess one of the things that comes to mind is that sometimes it's easier for parents to come through the door with identifying the child as having a problem than themselves having a problem. Some might feel so guilty or worried that they should have it all together that if they had to say it was their problem, that it might be hard for them to come through the door. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that, like at Cooper House, uh, we want to help parents that if they deem their child to be fussy, even if, you know, there's no diagnosis or anything, we want them to come and get help. There's probably more than just this child's having, you know, this is a bad child. (laughs) Totally agree. And if your baby is crying and unconsolable and it's maybe not their norm, then from the medical standpoint, we of course want to make sure that they're still feeding normally. We would recommend taking a 
temperature to make sure that they don't have a fever or have any signs of infection, that there's nothing that could be causing pain. Like um, sometimes even something like a little hair could get tied like around a little boy's penis or something like that. I've seen that once before. So really taking a good head-to-toe look. And and then, of course, coming to your pediatrician if you have any um, specific questions, as well as reaching out to your mental health care provider if you have one. So that reminds me of a joke. Okay. <laughs> what a great time to go into a joke. What is it? So how many infants does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many? One. He just points at it and cries until his caregiver does it for him. <laughs> Were you guys labeled by your parents as fussy babies? I was, actually. I was, mom, my mother said I had colic and that she said I was stiff as a board crying for three months. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) My poor mom. (laughs) But maybe that's an exaggeration. But but look how I turned out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're helping. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't remember if I was or not. And your parents never told you. No, what they did tell me, though, is that I did I did cry extra um, at one point, but that's because I had pyloric stenosis. The oh, narrowing just past the stomach. And so then I was throwing up all the time. And it caused a little bit of tension between my parents because my father was a doctor. And my mother would say, something's wrong. And my father would say, I'm a doctor. Everything's fine. He'll grow out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, I was taken to the pediatrician, and they did address the issue. You know? Oh, my gosh. Interesting. Yeah. I never knew that about you. Yeah. My what parent- about- I was apparently a pretty easy baby. Um, my brother was the the first child, and he was the hard, one, the more difficult one. And I was um, not a big crier, but I know the the car drives would put me to sleep that was the thing they would all get you know pile in the car and drive around and so I was a motion baby I guess but um these are all things that people learn about their kids as as they they go through it and then they hold on to it apparently for I don't know 60 years (laughs) or more Uh (laughs) reminding you as of it Well, it just goes to show how important that period is with the relationship with the parent and the child. It's really when they're just getting to know you. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 